Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, here to break down the Rays system today with J.J. Cooper. The Rays had the best record in the American League this year, reached the World Series, and entered the year with the number one farm system in baseball and have a lot of those prospects that made them number one still in the system. The Rays obviously have a very, very bright present and future outlook. J.J., who's done the Rays system for us for a couple years, is here to break down the past, the present, the future, all of it. JJ, before we dive into this top 10, when you look at the Rays and where they stand right now, just to be blunt, are they the team in the best position in Major League Baseball moving forward, aside from perhaps the Dodgers, given their present accomplishments and the farm system they have? I'd say no. And that's not because this is not a very promising team. This is not a team that, that could have you know, some significant staying power. But I, I look at what they have right now, and I look at what, say, like the Padres have right now, or um, I you know, probably could work a couple other teams in there. And there's just one thing left with the Rays. We, we don't know. We can't feel comfortable that the Rays are going to spend. And so where a team like the Padres can say we've got cornerstone players like Fernando Tatis Jr., cornerstone players like Manny Machado, we're going to add to that. The Rays have pretty continuously – even when they have great, you know, they've had great teams before, but they're on a constant churn to try to stay at that level. And the reality is with really good teams is that as you have good teams, we've already seen it. They may bring Charlie Morton back. We don't know. But rather than pay $15 million for the last year, Charlie Morton, he was sent to the free agent market. He was, his, his, team, his team option was, uh, was not exercised. That, to me, uh, the, the question we've always had about the Rays, it is an incredibly well-run organization. It is a – if the Rays call and say they want to trade for a prospect in your system, you're probably better off just saying, no, we're going to pass on that. And by the way, the Rays just called about this guy. He's actually three, five, seven spots better than we internally think he is in our evaluations. All those things are true, but – now we're comparing them apples to apples and we compare them apples to apples. I just, I'm probably still going to edge, give my edge to the teams that are going to have a payroll of 120 to 150 to 175 million and great farm systems rather than the one that has never topped a hundred million. You know, I did this study last year where I went back and in the wild card era, now with the Dodgers winning the 2020 world series, 25 of the last 26 world series champions had an opening day payroll in the top half of Major League Baseball. And if you want to go pre-wildcard era, the 92 and 93 Blue Jays ranked third and first, respectively, in opening day payroll. The short version is, in order to amass the star power and depth, because you need both to win a World Series, it costs money. And we've seen teams like the Rays, you know, the Indians were 27th in payroll when they got to the World Series, and they can get close but having that extra stud pitcher, having that extra standout reliever, which costs money, often is the difference between, hey, we won game six or seven versus we lost game six or seven. So I do think there is a ceiling to the Rays here as much as they have this talent, just given this precedent, given this history. I, I will push back a little bit just to say, like, you know, obviously the Indians, are, they're an example of one where, yes, they didn't win it, but they were... 
I guess about as close. It makes it more difficult. Yeah, we agree. We're absolutely in agreement on that. And the thing I do want to see with the Rays now, now everyone, everyone in baseball lost money in 2020. That is not owner's propaganda or anything as, as sometimes wants to be portrayed. No one had fans. Fans are a very significant part of revenue in Major League Baseball. That said, if you are going to pick out a team who was less negatively impacted by not being able to allow fans into the ballpark. The Rays are pretty much at the top of the list. The Rays, the year before, with a very good team, put a tarp on the upper deck and said, we're not going to open this up. And so for most of their games, they, there are a few exceptions, for most of their games, they topped out at about 25,000 fans. The revenue that they lost is significantly less than the revenue lost by Boston or the Yankees or the Dodgers. If you're bringing well over 2 million fans into the ballpark and you're also carrying some of the highest per capita averages as far as what those fans are spending, you lost a lot more money. That doesn't mean that the Rays are going to be a team that goes out there and all of a sudden has $150 million payroll. But I am interested to see how this offseason goes, but you know, that being said, that Charlie Morton deal we talked about is the largest deal in the free agent market that the Rays have ever done with the free agency that looks like this, you know, what looks like it's going to be this offseason. They're probably going to be bargain hunting again, but they're also probably going to be making moves as they often do, which is what are we, who do we have who is at their peak and is just starting to head into the decline phase, we think, of their career? How can we maximize our value for those players? And how could we get back talent in return that is going to be hitting their peak two, three, four years down the road? And no one does that better than the race. Be very, very interesting to see what they're able to accomplish. Again, this is a very good team. This wasn't a one-year fluke. They won 90-plus games each of the last two years. There's definitely something to work with here. And as we move into this farm system, Wander Franco, who entered this year as the number one overall prospect in baseball, uh, he spent some time with the Rays this year on the taxi squad in the postseason. JJ, just based on your discussions and your reporting, we talked a lot about Wander Franco, his gifts, just what a precocious young hitter he is. But there are times we have seen the number one overall prospect be good, but the number two overall prospect is better. We saw that happen with Mike Trout becoming better than Bryce Harper. We're seeing it happen with Fernando Tatis Jr. being better than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Realistically, I mean, what's the case here where maybe he isn't this stud hitter? It seems like there's a reasonable confidence, even if he's not this all-time type of young hitter, he's still going to be pretty good. Yeah, I would say that with Wander Franco, one of the things that stands out to me kind of most is the floor is so high. You know, there are players that we've had as number one prospects where you say, if it all comes together, this player could be truly transcendent. However, here are the many hesitations that you have with that. Wanda Frank is kind of the opposite. That if you are saying who are the toolsiest players in, our, in the minors, in our top 100, in our top 15, our top 10, Wander Frank is not going to be at the highest of that list. If you said who's the toolsiest player in the Rays' top 10, the guy who sits right behind him at number two, Randy Rosarena, is faster. You know, he hits the ball harder right now. He has probably a little bit better bat speed. He has these pure, better, just flat-out physical tools. What Wander Franco has is this amazing ability to hit a baseball, 
this barrel control, this ability to hit the ball hard without missing the, you know, with a lot, without a lot of swing and miss with excellent contact skills. But that said, okay, so let's say he's not a shortstop long-term, very possible second baseman or third baseman, let's say, let's say that he continues to hit the ball hard, but as he currently does, it's more of a level swing. Sometimes it's even a, you know, a stinging ground ball. Those are useful. Those are hits. But those aren't hits the same way that Fernando Tatis hits. You know, Fernando Tatis, a lot of his are going to go 425 feet. 425 feet means you're jogging around the bases. There's a possibility where Wander Franco's swing is not as tuned. It's more hitting for high average than it is hitting for power. If that doesn't adjust, he's still a very good player, but he's not, you know, is he a guy who – I think we wrote up in the write-up. He's more likely to win batting titles than he is home run crowns. Batting titles are very valuable. Batting titles, high, high batting average, high on base, don't strike out, is a very valuable aspect to have in a major league player. But that said, if you said right now, if you rattled off who are the five best players in the game, very few of them would fit that criteria. The game that we are in right now kind of is, if you do that and you hit 10 to 15 homers, you're not going to be viewed 15 to 20. You're not going to be viewed as valuable as the player who gives up a lot in, significantly in batting average, but still gets on, be, on base percentage because they walk, strikes out a lot, but hits a ton of homers. That's to me where you could have trepidation is not even the right word, but that's where Juan Franco's skills are a little different than some of the other guys. When we talk about compared to when Ronald Acuna was number one on our list and you say of Ronald Acuna, he may strike out a lot, but he's also going to hit a ton of homers. He's going to steal bases. He's going to play great. You know, he's going to play good defense in the outfield, different kind of tools. Was there any debate for him at number one? I assume no, but I mean, was it even a, a thought in anyone's mind in your discussions? No, I haven't found anyone yet who said, I, I, the, the other thing about this is, is that this is a different raise top 10 than it was a couple of years ago. There is no, I, we'll, we'll get to the, the, the biggest conundrum is the guy who's at number two, but there aren't a whole lot of players on this raise list, especially coming off of a uh, lost year of the minor leagues where many of these players didn't get a chance to do anything significant. They still, they were at the ATS, you know, alternate training site. They did go to Instructs for some of them, but that's not the same as having a monster year in high A or double A AA or triple A. There aren't a whole lot of other guys on this list after the conundrum at number two, Randy Rosarena. No one else who you say, oh, that's clearly a top 25 prospect in the game. Wander Franco came in the year number one, didn't do anything to lose that, number one in the game. But there's not a whole lot of competition for him on this group. So now we get into Randy Rosarena. And I want to start with, I think some people during his postseason, we're making claims like, oh, this guy came out of nowhere. You know, no one really knew who he was. He wasn't a top prospect. That is objectively false. Randy Rosarena was a top 10 prospect in Cuba. We ranked him there at Baseball America in 2015. He was a top 10 prospect in his international class when he signed. And he was a top 10 prospect in the Cardinals system. If you go and open your Baseball America prospect handbook from last year, which went to press before the trade, you'll see. He was a futures gamer in 2018. So this was someone that people knew, was promising, had talent. This wasn't an out-of-nowhere guy. That said, his performance was absolutely historic. Most hits, most home runs in a postseason ever by any player, not just a rookie, but anyone in the history of Major League Baseball. 
Yes, he had an extra round, but none of his home runs came in the wild card route. They all came in the division series, championship series, and world series. Randy Rosarena was absolutely fantastic. We're also talking about just over 40 total games. In your discussions with evaluators, what do they see Randy Rosarena as moving forward? Because again, as incredible as he was, he's obviously not going to hit 380 with a home run every other game over the course of a 162 game season. What kind of player are we looking at? Yeah, this is the confounding one. This is the tough one. Wander Franco won. That was easy. After that, there are some guys you can move around a little bit. But where do you slot Randy Rosarena? And, and the one place I will say that Randy Rosarena came into last year, like you said, we had him as a top 10 prospect in the Cardinals organization. Once we did the trade, though, we, he was, uh, I think, you know, he was early teens on the raise list, better list. Um, that said, Randy Rosarena is better than we or anyone thought he was coming into 2020. Like he has coming into the year, it was thought of as a fourth outfitter by the Cardinals always had viewed him as a fourth outfitter who might be a little better than this. The Rays now, the Rays always viewed him as better than that. And, you know, they have a, they asked for him multiple times in trades before the trade that actually they acquired him in, but he comes into 2021 he is not slotted as a fourth outfielder who might be a little better than that, obviously. Now, trying to – this is the philosophy question of 2020, 2021 prospect rankings can be summed up in Randy Rosarena, which is how do you use new information that you've received, that we've received, but balance that with what you knew before this season. Now, Randy Rosarena is an unusual one in that but a lot of these guys we're talking about who never played in front of any scout other than their own teams, personnel, all year. Those are tougher to evaluate. Randy Rosarena basically was the best player in baseball on the biggest stage in baseball for all of October. That makes it easier, but it also makes it possible to overreact to that. That said, the reason he's two is that we have attributes here that even if they fall back a little bit to earth because Randy Rosarena was utterly out of his mind, locked in at a level that few players ever are in the postseason 2020, the bat speed is really good. And that's a very useful attribute for a hitter. He hits the ball really hard. That's a very useful attribute for a hitter. But not only that, but in the postseason, what he showed, this wasn't a one-trick pony. This wasn't a guy at the start of the postseason was like, don't give Randy Rosarena a fastball up. If you do, he's going to abuse it. And he did. But then pitchers said, okay, we can't, we, we can't go to that well. We understand that. And then he did, again, not as good a job because he loves fastballs up. And again, fastballs up are something that a lot of pitchers are trained to do right now. So that's a, a very useful skill to have, being able to hit a, an elevated high-velocity fastball. But – he also showed the ability to hit breaking balls. He also showed the ability to hit change-ups. He also showed the ability to hit homers pulling the ball. He showed the ability to hit homers to the opposite field. The real questions to me right now for Andrew Rosarena are not, can this guy continue to hit? He's going to hit. It's not going to be at the level that he did. He was at a Bonzian, you know, level in the postseason. But he's going to hit for power. He's going to hit the ball hard, which will mean likely hit for average. There's subs, he's been aggressive. It's a lot of aggressiveness to his approach, but he's shown some ability to also recognize what pitchers are trying to do to him. The question really going to be, okay, so defensively, 
he has the tools to be a center fielder. He's not going to be a center fielder for the Rays probably because the Rays generally field guys who are 70s in center field like Kiermaier. But can he be an asset defensively too? Can he turn his speed, turn all those things? Can he get better jumps to where he's a well-rounded all-around player? Or is he a really good bat whose speed will help him be adequate in left field? That's still a very valuable player. It's just not as valuable as it would be if he becomes yet another one of these Rays center fielders playing in a corner, which he has at least the potential to do. He is a little older than most of the guys we're talking about here, but it's not like there's not some understandable reasons for that. He came over from Cuba, kind of had some lost time there. And then the Ray, the Cardinals kind of had him on that cusp. I mean, he's, he was on their postseason roster. It's easy to forget, but he was on their postseason roster in 2019. So, and he's still going to be rookie eligible in 2021. But all that together, I, I think that they're, yes, you should be skeptical. Is Randy Rosarin ever going to be as good as he was in the postseason? But I also don't think you should be skeptical and think this was a flash in the pan. This was a Buzz Arlet. And this is all we're going to ever see of him like this. And yes, I went with a Buzz Arlet. That's a deep cut I'm pulling out there. Yeah, you know, I got to write the Randy Arozarena scouting report doing the Cardinal system last few years and go back and look. And one of the things that we always talked about was it's all there. He has bat speed. He has sneaky pop, which he added to this year. He has a feel for the strike zone. He has plus speed. The issue was sort of just the polish wasn't there. He was still learning to take consistent at bats. He always kind of separated balls from strikes and could drive the ball, but just extremely aggressive. He was prone to overswinging, which led to a lot of swings and misses against breaking stuff and just, you know, kind of inconsistent quality of contact. But basically what we saw is a guy who had all the tools, all the attributes, again, bat speed, a little bit of pop, speed on the bases and in the field. And he just polished his game. His approach got better. He added more power before he would be kind of reckless on the bases and was kind of prone to running into outs. And, this year, he kind of cleaned that up. I mean, this is a case of a very toolsy, talented player adding the polish to his game needed to become an impact big leaguer. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's talking to evaluators out there. There's reasonable confidence this guy is going to be able to hit 280, 20, 25 plus home runs, steal some bases, potentially be even more. I mean, if he continues to grow, you, know, you mentioned he hits breaking stuff in the zone, but he was still swinging and missing over a lot of secondary stuff below the strike zone. And if he's able to start holding up on those, which is just part of growth as a hitter, then you can really, really see him take another step. So I think this is a good player and there's still room to grow, which is scary. It is scary. And again, credit to the Ray, credit Randy Rosarena first, but also credit to the Rays. This is the player they identified. This is what the Rays do. They want to identify players that they think are better, that are, and again, there's a scouting component to that. There's an analytics component to that. There are scouts from, well, from 2017, 2018, thought that Randy Rosarina had a whole lot of potential. They thought he hit the ball really hard. The metrics on that didn't always necessarily reflect that at the time, the track mandate and the minors and all. And then in 2019, the track mandate really kind of caught up to what, the bat speed, the, you know, the potential that had been seen in Randy Rosarena. And we saw that in the majors. Again, this is not something, these were not fluky home runs. There's a lot there. If you're a Rays fan, this is key because the thing we saw in the World Series, the, well, it was Randy Rosarena as, the, as what that was the Rays lineup in the World Series at times. That was their, world, their lineup in the postseason at times. They need more guys like him 
that's where having a Wander Franco, who, by the way, little tidbit, there was, there was some actual thought. Would Wander Franco fit? They talked about it at least. They had, I, I believe that they were uh, at least considering could Wander Franco fit on that postseason roster. And in hindsight, I look back at it and go, yeah, you probably could have because it would have been, it's probably better for his long term development maybe that he wasn't kind of thrown into that. But yet the reality, it just, Wander Franco should be able to help that club in 2021, minor league season or no minor league season in 2020. But I'm also very excited. He is actually good to play. We have the, the Dominican Winter League getting ready to go, and he's ready to go with Esco Guido. So Wander Franco was the clear number one. Was Randy Rosarana the clear number two in your discussions, or was there some competition for the spot? I would say at the start there was. I mean, it was something to discuss. But then, you know, at the end of the day, Okay, maybe I'm overboard, going overboard with this. But when you look at the tools, he has the best tools of anyone else that we're considering here, I think, across the board. When you look at production, he has done it at a higher level. He's done it at the highest level. That is something that absolutely is a factor you should look at. If I'm looking at two guys and one has performed in the majors, even in a limited uh, sample, and in a Rosarina's case, we essentially now have 200-plus MLB plate appearances because – for these purposes, the postseason, which don't count for official stats, do count as far as what you got to see. And the guys who you're comparing with, look at our position players, Vidal Bruhan. I like Vidal Bruhan a lot, but you're, you're hoping that Vidal Bruhan, he just doesn't have the thump. He doesn't really have – he's got great athleticism. He's not really that much more athletic. does have some more position versatility. The other ones that are in consideration are the pitchers and – None of these pitchers that you would compare him to that in this raise list are guys who are like slam dunk front of the rotation starters. They all have some concerns. They all have some potential hurdles. So yeah, at the end of the day, Randy Rosarena was to me kind of a, and I think to the staff as a whole, probably we talked about it a lot, but he ended up being kind of a clear number two. Yeah, absolutely. Especially after a performance like that. And I just go back to the tools were there again. This is a top 10 prospect when he was in Cuba, a top 10 prospect in his international class, who's a top 10 prospect in the Cardinal system at the time of the trade. There was track record here. There was tools here. And once performance kind of clicked, yeah, there's, it's hard to argue against it. Vito Bruhan, Shane Boz, Shane McClanahan, Brendan McKay. It, it's a pretty varied group here. A couple guys who have yet to really play much above the low minors, a couple guys who have touched the major leagues, where did this system sort of open up for you? Because you mentioned, again, Franco was the clear one, Arozarena was the clear two. Which of these guys was clearly the guy in their respective spots versus where did things start to kind of open up and you started getting a lot of different opinions? I do think there are some tiers here. And again, I'm probably cutting these tiers too, too fine. But, you know, you had Wander Franco kind of a tier of himself. You kind of have Randy Rosarena in a tier by himself. And then I'd say you have kind of Vidal Ruhan like as a clear – Number three, because the pitchers behind him are, are all guys who I like a lot, but uh, at, they all have kind of questions. McKay's being, you know, the shoulder injury that, that required surgery. McClanahan and Boz being guys who have some reliever risk to them. Xavier Edwards being kind of a very, very Vidal Bruhan-like, but doesn't hit the ball nearly as hard yet, and that's a big concern. Um, and then after that, I think once you get past that, I think at this moment, that's probably the end of potential top 100 candidates. I, they have the high school pitchers who 
generally you want to see how they make that transition to pro ball. We haven't really gotten to see that. Obviously with Nick Bitsko, first round pick in 2020, there was no minor league season. But really we haven't even gotten to see that with J.J. Goss. Really a lot of good things about him and Instructs. Um, but you are talking about you want to see how a guy like that does over the course of a full minor league season. And we haven't had that yet. So it does feel like, that, to me, this raised farm system, if you compare it to what it's been the last couple of years, it doesn't have as many of those, oh, this is a clear top 25, even this is a clear top 50 prospect. What this raised farm system has now is the guys who are 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, go up to 20 on this list are guys who you take them and put them in another system and they'd be easy top 10 guys. And, and in a lot of cases, you know, some, in some bad system, we'd be like, Oh, that might be number three on this list. And he can't crack a top 10 on the race list. Yeah, no, the depth of this system is pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, obviously we release the top 10, but once everyone gets their prospect handbooks and sees some of the names at, you know, 13, 14, 15, that's, hey, this guy would be a number five or six prospect and definitely some of the systems in the bottom half of baseball. I want to get back to these pitchers real quick. You started with McClanahan, went to Shane Boz and Brendan McKay. McKay was previously the highest of this group, but the shoulder surgery sort of affects his long-term future, just given how tricky shoulder surgeries are to recover from. At the very least, it increased his risk factor. How did you kind of suss these guys out, and ultimately, what led you to go the way you did? Uh, it really ends up being about McKay. Um, I, McKay is one, if, you, if we look back on this, there is a possibility, let me tell you right now, there is a possibility that we'll look back on this list and say McKay was underranked on this list. He has dropped from where he was multiple times in recent years. And it is very possible that I hope we root for prospects. I hope we're wrong on this. Because if we're wrong, it's because we have over-accounted for his shoulder surgery. That is possible. That said, we also try to do this as well as we can. And so I spent some time, you know, researching again, going back and going like, let's look through previous pitchers who've had labor and surgeries. Let's find the good examples. Let's find the encouraging examples. Now, encouraging example number one, everything about McKay surgery is, is it was not labrum. There, there was a labrum tear they repaired, but there was not rotator cuff issues as well. The double whammy of a labrum repair and rotator cuff repair is the, 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 the success rate for that is not pretty. But even with just having labrum surgery, it is generally, it has been a very long recovery period to get back to full strength. Michael Pineda, Hanjun Yu, who are encouraging examples, but those are ones Hanjun Yu, it really was about three years after it before he really kind of took that step forward again. It was, he was out for a full year afterwards, and then kind of the next year wasn't a whole lot. And then the year after that, things really started to click. So there is additional risk with Brendan McKay now. You know, it, there already was some risk because his fastball played a little true in the majors. He has really good command. That's what always been kind of his selling point. He has multiple pitches. He can command them. But he did have trouble finishing off major league hitters in his first MLB exposure. Now you throw into that the, the surgery and you add another level of risk. And so that's really why he moved down, I would say. Obviously, Shane McClanahan made it to the majors, a key moment for him, you know, to get up to the majors and pitch in the postseason, made his MLB debut in the postseason. But more than anything, it was McKay 
and the risk involved with having a significant shoulder injury that was more of bringing him down than McClanahan and Boz moving up that much. So I have a question for you on McKay. You, we do our tools grades up at Baseball America. You, I encourage everyone to go ahead, check out our top 10s. You can see the tools grades. You had gone ahead and thrown a 60, a plus fastball on Brendan McKay. And while for a lefty, his velocity is solid, he averaged just a tick under 94 in the majors. This thing was not a plus fastball. It was a below average fastball in his first in the majors. Yes. Uh, batter's hit close to 270 off it with a 515 slug. I mean, 10 doubles, four homers. I mean, this thing got crushed. And you talked about he did not have a put-away pitch. You know, I saw him in the majors, and we talked about Master's podcast. I was kind of surprised in the negative way. This was a very vanilla back-of-the-rotation look to me. But it's a guy's first stint in the majors. Mm-hmm. You always want to give guys a bit of a break. It's a huge jump from AAA to the majors. Don't let the outliers and their immediate success fool you. It's an enormous jump. It's less than 50 innings. You want to give the guy a break a little bit. But you're talking about a guy who, as you mentioned, the stuff was not great in the majors. Now you're adding a shoulder surgery on top of it. What gave you the faith to still put a plus fastball on Brendan McKay? That fastball was better in the minors than it played the majors. Now, again, there is some of that that is always difficult to to weigh the, the differences there. The minors are easier than the majors. But that said, the way he commanded it, it didn't seem like I, the way you put it, I thought was a good one, which is, is it is the adjustment period to the major leagues is often significant. And the way Brendan McKay pitched in the majors was not the way Brendan McKay pitched in the minors. Maybe that's because he's not capable of it. I don't think that's the case, but maybe that's possible. I think more of at the major league level, again, there's a lot of cliches we could use, but he gave hitters often a little bit too much credit. Um, You can do a different, use a lot of variety of different ways you want to approach it, but he wasn't locating that fastball early count. He wasn't locating his secondary stuff early count as well as you would like. And kind of ended up like you talk about the stats for the fastball and that's, that is the stat for at bats or plate appearances, I should say that resolve on a fastball. So if I throw a fastball 1-0 for a strike and then we go to 1-1, that's not reflected in those stats. Part of McKay's problem was, I think, in 2019, was he was, he was getting to points where he was throwing fastballs to hitters who were absolutely sitting fastball, and then on top of it, he wasn't locating as well as he normally does. It was a double whammy. The key thing we're going to have to see is – Okay, one, again, you you very right. Is he come back fully healthy? Because that's the unknowable unknown right now. If he doesn't, that's a big concern. But two, I think the biggie is, is he going to have that plus command that has really always been, like when you go back to that draft class that he was part, which was a great draft class, you know, you had a lot of interesting pitchers in it. But The selling point for McKay all along was command, multiple pitches, feel for pitching, and competitiveness. And we didn't see really that, again, through strikes. I I don't want to make it sound like he was just, you know, bouncing the ball up there and all. But he's a guy who the fastball plays at a six when it does, partly because he also, you're not sitting on it ever if he's going right because he's throwing that cutter. He's throwing the breaking ball. He's got 
He's giving you four pitches that he's locating, that he's putting you as a hitter on your back foot. Hitters were not on their back foot in his major league debut. And for him to succeed, he has to be ahead of the hitter, not the other way around. Two pitchers you put ahead of him, Shane McClanahan, Shane Boz. What's the starter reliever odd you put on both of them? They're pretty similar. I would say more starter than reliever. I mean, more reliever than starter, probably in both cases, simply because in McClanahan's case, I think that there's going to be this app. This happens. If you're, if you're the Rays and you have enough starters, which by the way, it looks like if, again, even without McKay, they, I know they lost Morton, but this is a team that a couple of years ago ran out of starters. And that's when the, uh, the opener began. They've got a number of guys now. And um, so especially if they make any other moves in the offseason, there's going to be a temptation to say, instead of putting Shea McClanahan back in the minors for most, if not all of 2021, there's going to be a risk of saying, this guy can probably help us in the pen and, and really has a chance to become kind of one of the, uh, the A group. You know, we saw that the, the Rays had their A group of receivers and they had their B group. There's nothing preventing McClanahan from being part of that A group in 2021 but the one thing i'll the counter argument i'll make for that is the rays are all about maximizing what they have and if you're maximizing what you have is shane mcclanahan he made strides this year he went to alternate training site as a starter not as a reliever and it was just when they got to august and september and you're looking at the postseason on the corner. Then they said, let's take you out of this starter role. Let's put you in a reliever role because you're not helping us as a relieved a starter in 2020. I think the Rays have a lot of incentive to keep starting him. There's some starter traits there, which is really that he's gotten more under control of his delivery. There's at least he's going to be always a stuff over, you know, fine command kind of guy, but there's a reason to try to start him. In Boz's case, there's going to be less temptation to move him fast because he's still a little ways away but there's also more reliever risk just because of the delivery, the intensity to it. But again, I'll caveat that again. I'm talking out both sides of my mouth. If you see Boz on the right day, and I talked to guys who did, it's like, no, no, no. I think he's strong enough to start. And as energetic as it is, as much as his control continues to need to improve, it's improved at least a grade, if not two, since the Rays acquired him from the Pirates. But that's because it was starting at a very low floor when they acquired him. But there are reasons to think if he continues at that rate of development that he could be a starter. And again, he's way more valuable as a starter for them. Now, it's not a perfect comp in any way, shape, or form, but I can't help but think the guy that they traded to get Boz, Chris Archer, was the guy that when the Rays acquired him, he walked everybody in the house. I mean, he walked you know, everybody. His walk rates in the minors coming up were always very discouraging. Although his delivery, I will say, was always a little cleaner than Boz's. And, but they just kept working on it, and it did click enough for him to become a very valuable starter. There's incentive, there's reason to try to do that, especially for a team that has kind of shown time and time again, they can find relievers. They can develop relievers kind of from here, there, or everywhere. They had guys, they had Aaron Loop, they had John Curtis as guys who were making, you know, getting useful outs in the postseason. It's harder to find the guys who can – go out and start and give them it's a raise. So go out and start and give them four to five innings in the postseason instead of one. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see their development, particularly in Boz's case, seeing if those strides forward can continue. You mentioned the bottom of this list, uh, Xavier Edwards, Nick Bitsko, JJ Goss, Joe Ryan, all guys who are talented. Ryan has touched double A, but the rest of these guys, it's been lower levels exclusively. Edwards got to high A. Bitsko and Goss are high school pitchers who, uh, in Bitsko's case, does not have a professional outing yet. And Goss has very, very little professional experience. How many other guys were in contention for the back of this list? Because you mentioned the top seven is sort of the, the top 100 range-ish, if you will. Um, that eight to 10 group, there was some discussion. How many other guys would you say got serious consideration to be in this top 10? Probably three to five. But when I look at it, there's one guy that I'm like, okay, this is my regret that he couldn't be on this top 10 just because this race top 10 is that good. When I talk to guys inside the Rays organization, but I probably more importantly, when I talk to guys outside of the Rays organization about their system, Taylor Walls is a guy, the shortstop, who is not that far away. Taylor Walls is the kind of guy who he just clicks every box of, at some point, I, I fear that we're going to look back on it and say, how did that guy never wake in a top 10? And my answer is going to be because the Rays top 10 is really good. But this is the guy who, if you told me, he's not in their top 10, but if you told me that he's an everyday major league shortstop for a good while, wouldn't shock me at all. Probably, he, you know, he is the best defensive shortstop they have in the minors, on par, if not better than Willie Adamas long-term, defensively at short. There, there is some hitting ability there, too. It's not a flashy, it's not a sexy, you know, o- overall package. But that said, it's a really good one, and, you know, with a, with a team that has so many shortstop middle infielder types, it's easy to kind of forget him. But if we put him in a different organization, we'd be talking about him as, you know, a, a guy who would be like, oh, that's like their number four prospect. He, is he going to be their shortstop midseason 2021? He's going to be their shortstop in 2022 because he already has, you know, he's not that far away from the majors. But it's just, it's the Rays system. So we talk about Wander Franco. We talk about Vidal Brujan. We talk about Xavier Edwards. And by the way, here's their fourth middle infield prospect, and he's really good too. Yeah, the Rays certainly have an impressive, impressive group of prospects, and uh, we'll see how it all shakes out. We've seen the Rays trade a lot of prospects. We've seen the Rays trade a lot of big leaguers. There's a constant shuffle with their roster year in and year out. JJ, thank you so much for your time and your expertise breaking down the Rays farm system for us, as well as their future outlook. We appreciate it as always. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America Prospects podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.